Welcome back to the Georgia 2024 show. I'm here with my co-host, Bill Quinn. Welcome, Bill. Good afternoon, Todd. It's good to be here with you. It is good. So we have big news. We said it recently, but I want to make it really clear. We are partnering now going forward with 1063 Extra in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, this is a fantastic development. We're going to be doing news bulletins all day long on 1063 Local Georgia Politics. So follow us there. And uh, Obviously, we're brought to you by the Georgia Record, georgiarecord.com. I really need everybody to put us in your daily scan. Sign up for our newsletters. Check the Georgia Record daily. There's so much on there. You can watch BKP in the mornings, Voice of, Voice of Rural America. You can do all kinds of things. And uh, if you want, go to the top menu and check out all of, other, all of the other sites on CDM, cdm.press. And we are literally global news. We are on the Caravan to Midnight Network. Salem Broadcasting is now promoting our one-minute uh, news updates there. So you'll you'll hear us on talk radio across the country. And we have a budding partnership with Vigilant News Network. That more to come on that and uh, Gateway Pundit. So a lot happening. Uh, the Georgia 2024 show is growing because it's so popular, literally globally. I have people from all over the world calling in or emailing in and saying, wow, what a great show. Really gives me insight into what's happening in America. And then also people across the country saying the same thing. So one way you can help us grow is to sign up for our no ad subscriptions. You get access to all 13 sites coming on 14. The Montana Sentinel just dropped and uh, a few months ago, and we're getting rave reviews on that. The Colorado Free Press, uh, the Miami Independent, our Armed Forces Press, CDM Espanol. There's a lot you can get on CDM. If you sign up for our no ad subscription, you get access to all of the sites with no ads. And uh, we are going to have a lot more advertisers coming in. And speaking of that, if you want to advertise, if you're not scared, if your business, uh, you know, I tell people our our viewer is your customer. And, and that's so true across Georgia and across the country. If you're an America first business and want that audience, we can deliver it and we can deliver it nationwide and even globally. So uh, if you're an advertiser, contact us on the email on the website. And Bill, who do we have on the show today? It's going to be packed. So we we have a bunch of folks. So we have uh, Joseph Rossi, who's going to join us first and talk about the latest Developments with regard to the uh, Raffensperger referral coming from the SEB to the legislature. We've got Mallory Staples, who will give us a, a broader legislative update. And then we've got Garland Favorito and Ricardo Davis, who will tell us the latest in the curling Raffensperger case and where that stands. So we've got that. And we may slide in a couple more little tidbits from, from Iowa as we're going through it. Well, let's get going and bring in our first guest. Okay, great. Joseph Rossi, how are you, sir? Good afternoon, gentlemen. It's good to Thank see you, you again. Thank you for joining us. And uh, I understand you have some updates from this week, uh, from your efforts to get uh, some action out of uh, Mr. Mashburn and, uh, and consequently then out of the legislature. So take it away. Tell us, tell us where we should start first. Yeah, so just a real quick recap of where we've been, and now and then we'll get into where we're at. So um, we we termed this a several months ago after three three years of work. Um, Raffigate the errors, the lie, and the cover up, mm -hmm. and it started in early twenty one. Uh, we exposed the errors. Um, Eventually, they were vetted by the governor's team for the hand audit, and then we also found some more issues and errors in the second machine count, which we'll talk about, and eventually ended up in a consent uh, order 
to Fulton County for election code violations. And at that point, the there was no dispute over the errors. Everybody from the governor to the secretary of state's office to Fulton County, the state election board, et cetera, admitted there were errors. Mm -hmm. At that point, we got into what I call the lie um, about the magnitude of those errors and um, some statements made by uh, Sterling about um, about the recounts and even though there were errors, they were still accurate and there were multiple counts of votes, et cetera. And then we moved on to, uh, we found the errors, they tried to lie about them, they couldn't do that anymore. And then we moved into what I call the massive cover-up. Mm -hmm. And uh, we filed a complaint way back in uh, March of uh, 2022 Two, I guess, no, 20, yeah, 2022, we filed a complaint against the Secretary of State's office uh, for election code violations. And um, the cover-up really started with what you have on the slide here, the page, which was shortly after Governor Kemp's letter came out in November of 2021. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned, uh, Charlene McCowan, who at the time was Assistant Attorney General, got an unsolicited, or Jack James, the partner I was working with, got an unsolicited phone call from Miss McGowan. And this was really the first uh, attempt to say, hey, we know there are errors, but y'all need to back off the Secretary of State. And so the cover-up continued through other entities, the Secretary of State's investigators, even up to the uh, chairman of the state election board. Um, where Mr. Mashburn told me in that meeting that he said, every time I brought up the Secretary of State's office, he said, I'm going to have to uh, warn you, uh, caution you that Fulton County is the only respondent. And when I asked him who decided that, he said that he did. So we still got to get to the bottom of that eventually, which I believe we will. And um, so the cover-up continued. Um, we had, our case was given a number SEB BI 2023-0001, and Chairman Duffy actually in July of 2023 opened up a case with the Secretary of State's office um, only to be shut down by none other than Ms. McGowan, who moved over to be Raffensperger's attorney. And you could see the quote there where she basically acknowledged that he opened a complaint and told him that she was hereby shutting it down. And then at the end, she kind of gave him a warning or an instruction. And she said, I trust with this information that the board will inform Mr. Rossi that no case will be opened on this matter. And again, this is a, a case to investigate the Secretary of State's office for election code violations. Mm -hmm. So um, then we moved to the uh, hearing on December 19th. And the first uh, part of that hearing that we were interested in was this SEB 2023-25 machine count two complaint, which the three big parts of that are there's 17,852 uh, missing ballot images that have votes counted, even though the images don't exist. There's over 3,000 duplicate votes. 
And then there's also in that complaint, this is in there, we haven't talked a lot about it, but there's also over 20,000 votes for machine count one that have votes counted that do not have a corresponding um, tabulator tape. It's like a receipt, basically. Yep. Let me ask one question right here, because I noticed that <clears throat> some others, uh, some other outlets, uh, those in Atlanta, seem to be downplaying the possibility that this would have any meaningful effect on the outcome of the 2020 election. Yet the numbers that you're reeling off would suggest that at least there's question about um, quite a number of these ballots and ballot images. Is that is that a fair statement? Yeah, and I, my focus has been on getting to the truth. So I haven't come out and said it. You know, this this would have made this number of difference, but or this would have changed the uh, vote. Yeah, here's the numbers as we know them, and then we'll let the public decide if it's if it's. Uh, of a, a number that's worth looking into. So for the hand audit, we had 4,081 false absentee ballots for Biden. Mm -hmm. And then for machine count two, we have um, 17,852 ballots counted or votes counted that do not have a corresponding ballot image, which we still can't figure out how that's even possible. And then the the third over three thousand duplicates again a machine count two and then over twenty thousand ballots counted or votes counted in machine count one that do not have a corresponding tabulator tape and I know I think I saw a statement from the Secretary of State's office that said well that's not a big deal that you know it's like a receipt you know you still own, you still have the goods even if you don't have the receipt and. When I first read that, I thought you can't even get out of Walmart these days without showing your receipt. <laughs> no, why? Why should why should a vote count if it doesn't have a receipt? So that, that was the first thing that. So came Joe, that, that's about forty thousand votes, right? Am I right? We're, we're we're talking, you know, upwards of tens of thousands of votes at this point. So. And what was the margin of error for Biden over Trump? Almost. 11,000, 12,000, something like that. Yeah, 11,770 something, I think. Okay. Um, so anyways, um, right before that hearing on Friday at 4.30, I got the email from the paralegal from the state election board. And keep in mind, this complaint was filed in July of 2022. The investigator started on it in April of 2023. They had it for about eight months and I corresponded back and forth with them, just trying to get them all the data I had. Cause I said, this is, this is about getting to the truth and I'm not hiding anything. I'm trying to help you get to the truth. And then in the fall of 2023, just before the meeting, the complaint came out as being completed and it was categorized as violation found. So I thought, okay, good. They're going to get to the bottom of this and we're going to get to hear what they found in the December 19th hearing. Lo and behold, one business day before the hearing, I get the email that says um, the complaint has been continued from the agenda and will not be heard at the December 19th SEB meeting. So obviously that was disappointing. <clears throat> when I reached out to the paralegal, um, she texted me back early that Tuesday morning and said that it was because during the pre-review process with the state election board, there were some challenging questions brought up by the board that the um, 
Secretary of State's investigators simply weren't able to answer. And I took that as they were really just doing an inadequate investigation, trying to minimize the damage, get this passed over with maybe a little slap on the wrist again. And basically they got they got caught and I think they realized they were gonna be embarrassed. So the Secretary of State's office asked that that complaint be pulled. Of course, um, there's no reason to investigate if the investigators can't answer the questions. That right. makes and, total sense. <laughs> and I had, uh, early on during the complaint, I had provided Mr. Zagorn, you know, he said, what do you, what, this is a long complaint, What give me kind of the bottom line, what, what are you trying to get answered? So I gave him 10 questions and that's why I said it was, it was like a take-home test. I gave him the questions and he had eight months to try to get them answered. Shall I bring those up, uh, Joseph? Yeah, that'd be a good time to bring those up. So this will give you some idea about machine count too. So, you know, the first question I said, probably the most important was for machine count two, why are there over 17,000 missing ballot images that you have votes counted for? So a pretty basic question. Um, I think Fulton, I, I know Fulton County has actually admitted that these ballot images are missing because they were not provided through an open records request. So that folks uh, listening understand what a ballot image is. This is part of what's created when you take your ballot and it's scanned into that thing that they call it a tabulator, but it looks like a big a garbage can with a scanner sitting on top. Is that right? That's correct. And the interesting thing about this through discussions with Sigourney, he was trying to figure out why this happened. And one of his theories was, well, maybe it was a, a batch that got pulled out or they turned something off or something. And so we provided him factual data that showed within the same batch. And I'll say that again, within the same batch, you had ballots that had ballot images counted and you had ballots that had no ballot images that were not counted. So it's not like you could have just had one batch. These were individual votes within the same batch that had ballot images and did not have ballot images. So simply unexplainable to us. So what, one possibility there was, was that these were inserted somehow and actually weren't votes. Is that that's possible? What, possible. That's what we're trying to find out. And to be honest, that's what we hope the investigators, being professional investigators, would be able to get to the bottom of. Right. So for machine count two, um, we actually got this through an open records request of Richard Barron, the director of elections for Fulton County. Um, we asked for his emails from a certain time frame, and we got an unusual email that was sent from him to Ryan Macias. And it was right around the time they were due, and I'll get into more specifics on it, but there was nothing in the body of the email, but there was an attachment and the attachment was batches loaded report. And I'll call that batches loaded report one because it was the report that came out after Fulton County announced they completed the second machine count. And it only had 511,000 total votes in it versus the 528,000 certified. So this is a, a batches loaded report that I'm not sure um, a lot of people know about, but we got our hands on it and Kevin and I still have a copy of it. And um, we also shared that report with the state election board as well. 
uh, in the spirit of full disclosure. So this report came out um, and it simply was short 17,000 votes counted. And then I said, uh, number three was, uh, why was BLR1 sent by Richard Barron to Ryan Macias in, his, in this email at 1213 on December 3rd? So the, the dates are important here. December 3rd is Thursday, the day after midnight, Wednesday, December 2nd, in which Fulton County announces that they have completed the second machine count. So Wednesday, midnight, December 2nd, Fulton County announces um, we're completed with the second machine count and Batch's loaded report is run and Richard Barron saves it um, sometime between midnight and noon 06 on December 3rd, Thursday. And then seven minutes later, he sends this report, BLR1, I'll call it the short one, to Ryan Macias. So my next question is, and I've got a pretty good idea who this is, but I, I think it's worth uh, validating. Um, so first of all, the question is, why did the um, election director send it to Ryan Macias via email? Um, who is Ryan Macias and what was his role in the so-called reconciliation process? So that process took place on Thursday. So it's my understanding, and I'd like the uh, Secretary of State's investigators to verify this, but it's my understanding uh, Ryan Macias was a consultant hired by the election group. And um, that group was funded ult ultimately upstream by the Zuckerberg funding. So I don't understand what he was doing, why he was sent this um, obviously, uh, Barron was troubled by it because he saw it was only 511,000 votes. So he took action and sent it to Ryan Macias. So then number five question was, who did Fulton County speak to from the Secretary of State's office on Thursday, December 3rd, regarding the fact that they were short and then uh, were asked to reconcile? So Richard Barron in his testimony that Friday, December 4th, said, hey, we saw we were short. We spoke to the state, which I'm assuming was the Secretary of State, and they told us to go reconcile. Now, here's where it gets really complicated and detailed, so it could get confusing for those that aren't intimately involved in this complaint. But 17,000, why were 17,000 votes added post BLR1 to BLR2? So, somehow during this reconciliation process, 17,000 votes got added. And then the, the more interesting thing is of those, why do 13,000 in-person early votes show as scanned on Wednesday, December 2nd, between 10 p.m. and midnight, and those show up in BLR2. So in BLR2, you show these 13,000 votes that are scanned between 10 p.m. and midnight. But if you go back and look at BLR1, um, which was completed as of midnight BL, um, Wednesday, they don't show up. Uh, which was run and saved after this time. And that gets to your question, Bill, could they have been inserted um, after fact with, with backdating, backdating the time and the date? So why are there 31,000 uh, duplicates? And then during the public meeting on December 4th, Richard Barron states that they were short. And I, I said, the question should be, you had to have known how short you were because you had BLR1. 
you know, what, what number was Richard Barron aware of? What was the exact number? He should have had that exact number. Um, and then why did Fulton County, this is kind of the big question, post on Wednesday night at 11.52 p.m. that they completed the machine count too, um, yet were short 11,000 votes and they had ended up having to reconcile on Thursday. So that's a lot of details and it's probably 10 of maybe 30 or 40 other questions that really need to get answered. But I think doc, Dr. Johnson said it very well at the hearing on the 19th. This is a very thorough, factual, complicated complaint that needs a very thorough, serious um, investigation. Mm -hmm. It sure seems so. So the, <clears throat> the uh, state election board on during that 19th meeting, uh, seem to struggle with, okay, now if there's something wrong, what do we do and are we allowed to do it? So perhaps you could give us a quick update on <clears throat> what's happened since in terms of referral. Well, first their decision as to what to do, the referral and so forth. Yeah. So just I'll quickly wrap on this and then we'll get into the authority question. So just one other item did transpire um, on this um, SEB 2023-25, just a, about a week ago, I got an email from Sarah Koth from the Secretary of State's office. She's the head of, or the director of investigations. And she told me that this complaint at this point in time is not planned for the agenda in February, mm -hmm. which is obviously disappointing because that's going to push the investigation down the road even further. I'm not I think the next meeting might not be till May. So um, if this isn't heard on February, which at least according to her email a week or so ago, it is not on the agenda for February, which is quite disappointing um, regarding this complaint and begs the question of more, more to the cover up. Yep. Okay. So in the hearing on the 19th um, regarding our complaint against the secretary of state, I call it the BI complaint 2023-001. Uh, um, the, the board voted, initially they voted two to one to proceed that they did have the authority, but then Mashburn in a late breaking announcement decided he was allowed as the acting chair to vote to not only break a tie, but to make a tie. So that fell short and then after that, um, Dr. Johnson filed a motion to ask the General Assembly to answer the question of authority, and which has probably turned out good in the long run, I believe. So um, I got a letter from Mr. Mashburn last Wednesday, and um, that letter basically said, it was a letter to the General Assembly, Speaker Burns and Lieutenant Governor, um, Burt Jones, and you guys could see the letter there, but basically it asked them to determine whether the state election board has authority to investigate uh, Secretary of State's office. So I felt like that was a, a step forward and um, it's, it's in the hands of the General Assembly. And as of a day or two ago, or I, I actually heard this late last night from someone I wasn't even aware. Apparently the General Assembly, the Senate and the House 
We have a proposed bill, and Bill, maybe you could speak to that probably a little better than I can. Uh, I can fill in a little bit. So there is bill. It's a Senate bill three um, three eighty five that has been dropped. If I did the math correctly, it looked looked to me like they got the referral on Thursday of last week from Mr. Mashburn, and uh, the bill was presented and put in play on Friday. So one. I'm, I'm encouraged by that, by, you know, some, I'll call it quick action. Two, it's got a number of sponsors that are behind it, uh, including um, Majority Leader uh, Senator Gooch, um, uh, Senator Greg Dolezal, and you can see the, the remainder here. So one, it's got fairly broad-based support, at least from the Senate so far. Um, and it's a relatively short, direct bill. It says three things. One is... Um, that it removes, this bill would remove uh, Raffensperger as an ex officio member of the state election board. So he would no longer be on the board. Two, uh, it it uh, does confirm that the state election board has the right and authority to investigate the secretary of state. And three, it commands the secretary of state to cooperate in such an investigation. So um, it isn't done yet. This is a bill that's in play. But uh, I believe that uh, we've already written and published the article that describes um, content and how this came about. And I think we're going to publish a uh, backup article that uh, provides mechanisms for folks to communicate to their legislators that if, if their belief is this should go forward and, in fact, that investigation should occur, uh, we would invite you know, the, uh, the, the public to feed that back to their legislators both in the Senate and the House, since they'll, they'll all have to weigh in on it and hopefully get this going forward quickly. That's great. So when I got word of that, again, I was not aware of it till uh, late last night. Someone texted me some information on it. <clears throat> I kind of had three things that came to mind. One was, okay, this is good. We're, we're inside the 20-yard line again. Last time we had to settle for a field goal. And this time we can't settle for anything but a touchdown. And then I thought, wow, a lot of work and people's time have gone into this. And I thought, well, you know, we could have probably settled this two or three years ago had the Secretary <laughs> of State's office been willing to sit down and meet and have a little bit of full disclosure and help us get to the truth. And so I, I, I was a little bit I don't know, somber, I guess, saying, I'm, I'm glad it's happening, but gosh, how did we get here? And I guess it's because we didn't have full disclosure from the Secretary of State's office or a willingness to sit down and meet and yeah. review the facts as the governor's team did. And then the last thing I thought was, well, of a, a bill of this importance, I got to believe they have some general alignment up and down um, with this complaint. And then I thought this really ought to be a bipartisan bill. Everybody in the General Assembly ought to, who would not vote for an official to not be accountable um, for what they do? So, um, well, and who would want to be known for doing such? Yes. So, only members of an organized crime cartel. <laughs> so, um, one, congratulations. I mean, you've, you've done a lot of personal work to get this thing moved to the stage that now there's a lot of people I know uh, behind you and beside you pushing this forward, but um, let's not lose sight of, you know, the research and the work and the, 
you know, going to state election board meetings and getting hammered by others to tell you, you know, oh, you shouldn't be talking about the secretary of state fell on fell on your hands and and uh, to some extent Kevin Mockle and others. But I don't want to lose sight of that as we get through this. Um, so, uh, what's the what's the next step? Do you think, or do you have a sense yet? Well, a couple of things. I'm going to follow up on 2023-25 with the state election board because mm-hmm. I can't just. Well, we'll be respectful as we always are, but I can't just sit back and without them questioning, why is this not on the agenda? What is what the heck is going on? So that's the first thing we're going to do. Um, we're going to sit back and see what happens on this bill and um, obviously talk to our local representatives. And I believe we've got good support from some good folks there. And then... Um, you know, we'll, we'll we look forward to the new members of the board uh, being voted on and sworn in, and proceed with uh, an independent, thorough investigation of the Secretary of State's office um, for the election code violations. We are going to file a supplemental to the state election board on that complaint. It's in draft form right now, but Mr. Monkla and I and Jack James will, are working on that, but. The reason for that is it's been a long time since we filed that initial complaint, March 21st of 22, and an awful lot has transpired since then. So we want to make sure that what has transpired since that early um, complaint, earlier complaint, that all that is part of the record for that complaint. And as I was doing the draft, all I'll say at this point, the the details are very, there's a lot of details and um, there's a lot of information in there, uh, quotes, transcribed, factual information that is, is going to be eye-opening when people read it in terms of our story, the error, the lie, and especially, especially the cover-up. It's Yep. It's, it's massive. And well, it's con- con- t- continuing, appears to be. Go ahead, Todd. I was going to say, you guys should feel good that you've made a difference in the fact that most of Georgia now realizes the elections are corrupt. So that is something you've you've moved the Overton window there. So thank you for that. That's correct. I know we're going to have you on uh, uh, probably quite a number of times as we go forward. So we'll look forward to the next updates. And uh, in the meantime, uh, once again, well done, and, and thank you. Thank you, gentlemen, for getting the word out. Appreciate the time. Take care. Have a you blessed bet. day. You too. Wow, it just gets deeper and deeper for uh, for Mr. Raffensperger, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't I don't see how the guy can stay in office. To be honest, I mean, well, he can stay in office partly by dodging uh, Senate ethics uh, hearings when he's called to them. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, we'll see what happens. But hopefully, you know, enough patriots in Georgia. We'll realize the people are not going to put up with this in a peaceful way. Yep. Um, so, wow. So the, the markets are going crazy right now. Inflation is rearing its ugly head again. There's the whole concept of another asset class with crypto. You know, typically you've had commodities, equities, uh, FX, uh, fixed income, etc. Now you have crypto. Uh, if you have a portfolio that, you know, you may want to review, call our financial advisor. And uh, ask him because uh, David Cross is, is is a really smart guy. He's a supporter of this show, and we want to support him. So can you run an ad, Bill? You bet. This is-
is a special report. Knowing how to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility, record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money. And speaking of that, unless I missed my uh, my my guess, I thought I saw a story in the last 24, 48 hours about Citigroup having an issue and having to do a pretty good size write-off and and was planning some layoffs. So, yeah, and we just did a uh, a great interview with Rob Cunningham uh, out of Fulton County on the new crypto Bitcoin ETF. You can go to my show Information Operation and see that there with Rob. It's on CDM.press. So, uh, you know, um, we're all over this issue. That's one of them. So our next guest, Bill, is a new contributor to the Georgia record. Let's bring her in. Okay. Mallory Staples, good afternoon, and thank you for joining. Hey, guys. How are you? I'm Great so to happy you, to be Mallory. here. We are busier than one-armed paper hangers, you know? Definitely. <laughs> you are. I was just watching the last segment, and um, it's like drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> definitely. Non-specialist. It, it really is. I had to take notes to just you know, pare it down, you know, yeah. just follow the timeline and who did what and all the things. I mean, the headline is corruption uh, equals Rappensburger. But, you know, just to get all the details right, you really kind of. It's not complicated for sure. You, you got to cast a wide net to get all those fish, don't you? Yes, you <laughs> do. Yes, you do. And Todd, you mentioned Patriots in Georgia, not letting them get away with it. So. Well, speaking of that, I just got a text from a, a good uh, friend of the show saying, let's let's have a call to action for Raffensperger. So what do you guys think? What's the best way, Mallory, to put pressure on the, on the system? Do you think? Um, I'm all about blowing his funds up. I think that's mm -hmm. appropriate and well-deserved. But mm -hmm. the people who actually make him uncomfortable would be the governor and our elected officials. So it's a, uh, we push them and they push him. Um, you know, we have seen historically that it takes an incredible amount of civic inertia to get these people to move. And um, so I would, I would take the all of the above approach. And I think it is appropriate. Again, his phones need to be like, you know, shorting mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. But I think everyone needs to also tap their house rep and state senator as well as leadership um, to do this. And again, I'm like a broken record on Chris Carr. It blessed my soul deeply the other day. I'm going to put it up on social media. Mark Levin went full scorched earth on Chris Carr. It was like, is he aware of what his office does? Does he understand that there are laws? I mean, does, does he get why he was elected? It's absolutely jaw dropping to me that his office is literally completely silent, completely yeah. silent through all of this. I mean, yeah, the, the Trump indictments, everything, yeah. nothing. Yes, absolutely yeah. nothing from the man. And, um, you know, between Chris Carr and the governor, you know, in in light of Raffensperger's grotesque failures and, you know, belligerent um, uh, lack of action and, and seeming, you know, partnering with um, those forces that are set to destroy our elections here in Georgia, they are our two first 
like need your like when you go to the doctor and they hit your knee to see your reflexes. I mean, Brian Kemp and Chris Carr should have been our reflexes in 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 light of Raffensburger's failures. And they haven't. So I, I think they should also be contacted as well as the General Assembly. And um, I'm getting ready to put out the uh, Freedom Caucus newsletter, my newsletter. So I would uh, I will have that in there and make it you know very easy for everybody to locate their legislator and all that if they haven't. I mean, I think most of your li listeners are pretty um, savvy and communicate on the regular with their uh, representatives. But I will I'll get that out as well. That's great. So you're you're in a unique position to be able to see the bills as they um, get put back on the table, I guess, or or put back in play after the beginning of the session last week. Um, we're we're looking forward to your insights as we go forward as to what bills should pass because they're good for Georgians, and what bills should be squashed into never never land because they're bad for Georgians. Um, can you just give us a, a little briefing on how you how you'll be bringing that forward? I hope that's part of what you'll be doing, but oh, how yes. you'll be bringing that forward as we go. Yes, I will. And I can assure you that the ratio for those two different kinds of bills that that you just mentioned, those to be championed and those to be squashed, you know, is about nine to one. Um, literally, there's there's a lot more squashing that needs to happen and, um, you know, smaller levels of championing. But the ones that we're championing. Uh, and putting forward are significant. And Bill, you and I have had some discussion already as we head into Appropriations Week. Um, right now, to all your listeners, they are looking at the governor's budget book that he just released on Thursday. Uh, we are going over it with a fine tooth comb. Again, it is not straightforward, so you have to really dig to see what they're doing. But um, the the budget is the Leviathan. Um, you know, without money, none of this can take place uh, without these people getting paid and empowered um, through appropriations. Nothing happens in government. And the government, as a reminder, produces nothing. It is all of our tax dollars that they're appropriating. It is it is our money. Mm -hmm. um, so we are top, top focus on the budget. And um, one of the things that the governor spoke of in his state of the state was a tax income tax reduction. Unfortunately, his income tax re re tax reduction is 0.1%. Uh, the Freedom Caucus believes that we should be joining our neighbors in Tennessee and Florida and getting rid of the income tax. And the receipts for that would be the surplus that we have had. This is the third year in, the in a row. Mm -hmm. uh, this year is $16 billion in excessive funds that have been collected from the taxpayers that are outside of the $32 billion budget that the state already collects from their citizens to do all their deeds and services. Um, so $16 billion, last year was 6.6. .6. So they collected an additional $10 billion and we are told there's a little bit of chatter there that that number might actually creep up to 18 billion. Um, it, it's a hard number to even wrap your mind around. If you think about the fact that Congress didn't want to give Trump millions of dollars to finish the entire border wall right. to have 16 to 18 billion dollars, you, you can't even, you know, the numbers get so, um, just theoretical that you almost can't wrap your mind around it. But at a time when Georgians are all being pinched, no matter 
where you are in the, in the income level, these are tough times. You know, Todd, you were just talking about the financial state mm-hmm. of the country and this inflation. So what the Freedom Caucus feels is appropriate at this point is to begin aggressively dropping the income tax. And so, so Brian Kemp's proposal, the 0.1%, would eliminate the state income tax in um, 54 years. And so, and it's actually set to stop in four. So um, that's not acceptable. In six years, if we, you know, adjust the income tax by 1% for six years, in six years, we can eliminate the income tax and allow the proper amount of time for agencies to adjust to these new appropriations. That seems completely reasonable. That is by far the boldest uh, income tax reduction plan we've ever had in the state of Georgia. And Senator Colton Moore and Representative Charlie Spurd will be dropping those simultaneously in both of their chambers. We did a press release this week to announce it to kind of coincide with the state of the state and the governor's plan. Um, That is something that everyone should be talking to their reps and senators about that. That should get massive Republican support. It will not, but it should. But this is when those good patriots in Georgia apply that pressure to say no more of our money. Absolutely no more of our money. And and we've talked, I've talked about this on your show as well before. I want to remind everybody when the federal government overtaxes you, you immediately, without petition, receive a check in the mail for what you paid over in your federal taxes. The state of Georgia does not do that. They just keep it. And and I, in, a, in a jaw-dropping event Saturday, I was in a um, town hall, and it was, it was open to everyone um, in Charlie Spurd's district. And there was a couple that was there. And, and I just, I don't know them. I will probably never know them, which is fine. But they were arguing that the state was not um, being wise in returning. Right now, the projection return to the citizens will be 3 billion of the 16. And she wanted to know why they weren't going to spend all 16 billion of it. And I sat there looking at her as I listened to this argument and I thought, you know, that is the mentality really that we're up against, which is the government should take care of everyone for everything, whether it's workforce housing, whether it's transportation, whether it's food, whether it's medical care, whether it's education, doesn't matter, insurance premiums, the whole lot. Um, and, And that just high level really is the problem is that personal responsibility, independent, self-sufficiency, not safety, not welfare, is really what the Georgia Freedom Caucus is down there fighting for, that very fundamental um, understanding that we we are best served for the government to be small and out of our lives. But that is the mentality that we're up against. And um, that uh, to me, that a taxpayer would be arguing to spend every dollar of the $16 billion and instead of just 13. It was a real moment for me. I mean, I just thought, wow, wow. Cause I don't caucus with the Democrat chamber, obviously. Um, I don't talk to them a lot, but um, that's what we're up against. So conservatives need to be very, very loud and very expressive because they are absolutely going to keep our money if we do not um, 
I highly, highly encourage them not to do that. So, so obviously the income tax, um, I don't know if you have any comments about that, but the income tax reduction is a very important bill for the Freedom Caucus. Well, I was doing a little, little back, back of uh, napkin math and uh, there's uh, somewhere between 10 and 11 million people that are uh, residents of Georgia, if I recall correctly. Mm -hmm. And when you take that and you compare it to even just the 16 billion I think what that suggests is for every man, woman, and child, every resident of Georgia, there's about $1,600 sitting there that currently has no use and really should be back in the pockets of those who contributed it or were, had it taken from them in the first place. That's right. Um, so that's one comment. The other is I, I too was in a meeting this week and I had... Um, someone who came up afterwards and, and uh, mentioned to me that he was a Democrat, but he said, the reason I'm here is because I think you guys have it right. Yeah. I think we need to be more in charge of our costs, our money, the way it's spent. And uh, he said, there are, we, we don't agree on everything, but we agree on a lot of the big stuff. And so I think you're right. You, there are people that, uh, that are, um, perhaps uh, uh, easy to convince to, hey, since the dollars are already collected, let's just go buy something with them. And then there's others that say, wait a minute, you know, $1,600, I have a family of five. That's, That's almost $10,000 that I'm contributing if, if in fact they, they paid that in. Um, well, and it, you know. it speaks to the fact that it's very hard once the government has your money, this is the support of reducing income tax. Once they have your money, it's very hard to get it back. So let's yeah. not give it to them to begin with, right? That that yeah. that is the that is the posture because they want to spend it. They will find ways to spend it. Just like leadership last year sent out, you know, an email to all the committee chairs saying, "Yeehaw, we have all this extra money. Send us your wish list of what." What do you want to do with it? Well, that happens in the military too. At the end of the pay cycle, hey, we got fifty thousand. Tell us, tell us what you need. That kind of yes. stuff. It yeah. is. Yeah. It's literally. We have come so far from. I decided last night to unplug, and my one of my dear girlfriends, she was like, "You need to watch something fun and happy that is not at all, you know, important. I want you to watch something that's not important." So, being the uber nerd, nerd alert for y'all that I am. I decided to watch a documentary on Ronald Reagan because I wanted to hear logic and truth and conservatism and just really bless my soul with it. Mm -hmm. I, it, he could have been president a hundred years ago. We've come so far. It, it literally, when you just break down the ideology and it, it was just a joy to watch and it was kind of fueling my tank, but this mindset that is actually communism it is communism to mandatorily tax the citizens and force them to pay for the rest of the populace it through the through the mechanism of the government i mean that that's what communism does right sure. and it never succeeds in history it, it you know it never prospers a people yet here we are and whether it's HB 520, whether it's what they're going to do with the surplus budget and so many other programs, it really is. And Charlie said this at her town hall, and I was so glad she did. She said, you're talking about communism. You know, we were on mental health, which sidebar is the bill to kill. Um, and we're, we're hoping 
we've heard some some positive things about HB 520 itself, but we feel like the tactic is to break it up into pieces and shove it into almost like yep. shrapnel to use, you know, a, a, yep. yeah. And so we're watching, you know, Blake is obviously up at Oh Dark Hundred every day, reading every word of everything that, you know, is produced. And we're watching the committee schedule and what the itinerary is and all these things. But, you know, in regards to mental health, you know, we were kind of getting in the weeds in the discussion and I just stopped and I just said, okay, who wants to go to a state run hospital for their mental health needs as opposed to a private practice? Who wants to get dropped off at a state? Well, and, and who and wants to like, oh, you know, and I'm like, so that needs to, yes, we have mental health issues that the government has created literally singularly every one of them. But however, we are in a crisis. We have mental health issues, but why would we ask the government to take care of our most vulnerable when they don't do anything well? Like the right. the, the logic, I don't, I just don't understand. You well, know, don't that, worry, don't worry. Communism is going to work this time. Yeah, who would special circumstances in which communism is going to work? To your point, who would want to go to such a hospital? But more to, more in line with my concerns um, that I've seen. Who wants to be told by the state that you need that help? Who wants to be labeled a domestic terrorist because you're speaking up at your school board? And oh, and by the way, now you need to be we, we need to have you evaluated. You well, know? from an administration who literally wants foster parents to be eliminated because of their Christian faith, because they don't, um, you know, embrace transgenderism. I mean, the attack on the church and Christianity and Catholicism, which we've seen from the FBI, you know, on repeat over the past several years, you cannot give them any more room and any more power. We we should be like, we need to see an atrophy of both the federal and state government. And and it is it is easier for people to vilify the, the federal government under the Biden administration because Joe Biden is such a, you know, worthless criminal crime family boss that everybody can see that. But what, what I'm trying to do is say, hey, on the state level, the same dynamic is at play. We have it's, a few of those in Georgia. Too. control mm. on yeah. steroids. Yep. And well, uh, so we got to stop that. So as Todd had said earlier, uh, we are just delighted that you're going to be uh, part of uh, our efforts to get truth and uh, and valid information out so that people can know what to do and what what to push on and what to say yes. stop as we go forward. Uh, so uh, you'll be contributing uh, to the Georgia record. Uh, you'll be contributing to uh, you know to our show here. And we're just we're just delighted and, and thank you for making the time available. I know you got a number of different roles you fill, but uh, very much appreciate that. Thanks, oh, Mara. I'm so honored. I just can't even tell you. I told you if I hadn't been standing in the store when you called me, I would have screamed. I just love it and I appreciate <laughs> it so much. Um, one more legislative little thing. I want to do my job because I sure. know you know I can be verbose, but. Um, we are uh, Senator Colton Moore in in the Senate chamber is dropping the Stop Political Persecution Act, which is basically it's like a de facto pardon for uh, Donald Trump and the 18 others that were indicted 
for him where, you know, just not allowing, it doesn't minimize, minimize our laws, but it, it um, keeps them from abusing the RICO laws. Uh, we need every senator to sign on to that. Um, Charlize is also going to carry, um, a, she is carrying a great medical freedom bill, which, you know, with all the things they're cooking up for us in 2024 uh, to derail this election, um, and the potential for Donald Trump to win the presidency, uh, medical freedom. It's called Never Again. And uh, it's a great bill from Charlize on that. Um, we are uh, again going to try and push SAPA, the Second Amendment Protection Act, forward as they just gnaw at our Second Amendment rights every, every chance they get. Um, and we're working on an, an omnibus kind of election integrity bill um, where we just ask for the sun, moon, and the stars. Um, but uh, just really, uh, we would love to see it because there's all these little fragmented, you know, uh, bills that have been worked on for quite some time. We we see the omnibus bill as an opportunity to put everybody on record. And, you know, Bill, we, we, we saw some of the um, representatives getting put on record after the rally last Monday about where they stand on elect election integrity. And it was very, very valuable. It's going to yeah. make um, the primary season super colorful and interesting some of the videos that the citizens got of the representatives talking about how they really felt about election integrity. Yeah. They so, got put on something. I, I think in some cases it was the hot seat. Very so. much the hot seat. <laughs> and, and, but listen, everybody was super well-behaved and respect, um, respectful of their reps and stuff. But, you yeah. know, most of these guys and gals do not love accountability that is not their love language. <laughs> so they yeah. they bristle um you know when when the people they work for you know come in to to, to question what they're doing and what what's going on but there's just going to be so much of that they need to just get used to it because to it. it's coming yeah. yep. mm-hmm. well once again thank you so much for we're we're delighted to have you as part of uh, part of the team and we're going to have one heck of a legislative session. We're going to have one heck of a year. So Yes, we are. Thank you all so much. Be blessed. Right. I'll talk to you Take soon. Care. Thank you, Mallory. <laughs> Bye. Wow. The hits just keep coming. Fantastic. I'm telling you. Um, so there's been a lot of news recently. Elon Musk came out and said, uh, beware. They're, they're taking over your schools, hotels, housing for a lot of the 10, 20 million immigrants that are coming in. And they could take your home. And so my point in saying that is that you need to be prepared for what may happen. You're not going to have time to react when things do happen, whether it's the electric grid. I mean, there was a big report out on Tucker a couple of days ago on that. Um, it, you need to be able to start preparing to, to take care of your family. We've talked about medical a lot, but we're really focusing on food. And if you go to cdmfood.com, you can see Marjorie Wildcraft's entire uh, presentation and, and courses that she offers on how to grow nutrition uh, in a uh, small area. If you don't have a lot of experience, if you don't have a lot of strength, you can still grow and create your own nutrition, medicines, and other things with stuff you have around the house. So go to cdmfood.com and check out the Grow Network with Marjorie. Um, she's fantastic. She's really committed to it. And the amount of information she has there is just off the charts. Uh, but besides just nutrition and uh, and medicines, Bill, we also have our partner out in Nebraska, Glade Miller-Smith. I'm doing an interview with him on Monday, again, one of his fireside chats, which uh, will make Bill happy for next week. And <laughs> and uh, so uh, the steaks that and the, and the beef that he produces 
is off the charts, tasty, no mRNA. That's huge. No uh, changing your DNA when you have a steak. And uh, just really good quality, high quality beef from Nebraska, from a family farm that you can trust. So familyfarmbeefbox.com is the is the name of the website. Check it out. Uh, let's run an ad from here, please. Okay. So that's familyfarmbeefbox.com and uh, Bill's always happy after those commercials. I love I love the cow coming up and sticking his nose in the middle of the camera. Maybe we may play that for the end of the show. Yeah, maybe we can. So uh, Glade's a great guy and uh, familyfarmbeefbox.com and uh, check it out. So let's bring in our next guest. All right. All right. So we have, uh, in, let's see, what, what order? We'll start with, with ladies first. Tam Tamara Favorito. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. I see you. I see you brought your second in command, I Garland Favorito. Along for support. And, and then your esteemed colleague, Ricardo Davis. Thank you all for being here. Glad to be here. I, I, I decided that since uh, Tamara was sitting in every day on this hearing, she could definitely have some insight to add for the show. Well, for sure. I've seen you many, many times, and, and my impression is Tamara is never far far from you. So she's a constant support and deserves to be right where she is. That's a blessing for sure. I'm actually the official voter GA courthouse reporter for the oh. Curl. Are you really? Gosh, we may oh. need to sign you up as a contributor as well. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, so curling Raffensperger, many people know that the case is going on. Um, I, I think you're what one, one week into what sounds like maybe a two and a half to three week trial. Is that about right? Yes. And so I uh, would love to hear the latest. Uh, we saw a release from the Secretary of State taking a victory lap on uh, being able to skirt something. So I won't steal I won't steal any thunder. Let's have you guys cover what you need to, please. Well, well, the short the short uh, 30 second on that one is that Brad Raffensperger, the man who wrote the Integrity Counts book, refused to testify under oath about Georgia elections. And he's taken a victory lap because the 11th Circuit allowed him to get away with that. Jeesh. Goodness gracious, I think I really want to go out here. Um, interestingly enough, just a, a side note, uh, he was also asked to testify in the True the Vote versus Fair Fight case and skirted that subpoena as well. So... So what else do we know if, if about? If I remember uh, correctly, yeah. Brad, un unlike what he was able to get away with in the curling case, he had direct involvement in the situation with regard to um, the fair fight case because he was I, involved in the consent agreement. I think that's correct. I think that's correct, and should have, by all rights, should have testified given the. 
I'll call it others' opinions that were more knowledgeable than mine in the room. So, so uh, Garland, I, I know you sent in some uh, slides to brief uh, us with. Um, you tell me how you'd like to go through this, please. I'm, I'm thinking that it would be probably beneficial to the audience if we did the slide deck first and uh, Ricardo and I will double team that. We know exactly where to uh, okay. leave off each other and transfer control. And then we can go into the, the actual last week uh, of the of the trial. And, uh, you know, Tamara can probably add some insights there as well. That's great. Um, so this is uh, the case. The, the case is going on at the Richard B. Russell building. Ricardo and I were down there. Uh, this is... Um, it's really only about a block or two from Marta Five Point, so you can you can actually take the train and block, walk about two blocks over the building. And we're up on the twenty three um, twenty three hundred court, the top floor. last top floor of the of the building for the trial. Are you ready for me to switch? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. There you uh, go. I'll, okay. Okay. So, um, just a quick recap of how did we get to where we are? So. Um, Basically, back in 2002, uh, I wrote a letter to the Assistant Secretary of State, and that time was Michael Barnes, you'll hear that name again, and um, explained that I think the system that you're looking at, these are back during the evaluation stage of the old DRE system. I said, I think these systems are not verifiable to voter and they're not auditable, and I think they're unconstitutional. So nevertheless, uh, the General Assembly went ahead uh, and paved the way for the, such a system by removing the independent audit trail requirement in Georgia law. That bill was Senate Bill 414, and it was uh, it basically uh, wiped out the audit trail requirement that Senate Bill 213 had put in there the year before. So um, that paved the way for Kathy Cox to deliver the May 2002 uh, the original DBOL system, that system, as y'all know, was not verifiable to the voter. It just, that was the old touchscreen system. It poofed the, um, the, the whole uh, screen, all the votes just went away uh, and you had no audit trail, nothing that the elections officials can audit. It didn't recount a, a race. It only reprinted the previous unverifiable results. And there was no paper trail, nothing, to, no transparency whatsoever. So that's a little bit of history of, of how of how this whole thing started to begin with. Um, and and uh, so quickly going through the uh, 2002, we had some controversial uh, races back then when the governor and the U.S. Senate races, uh, uh, there were big upsets there uh, and they favored Republicans. And Sean Hannity called it the earthquake in Georgia. And then... Uh, that was when, uh, in 2006, that's when Ricardo and I founded uh, Voter GA and for the express purpose of a legal challenge to that voting system. And uh, Professor Williams, as part of that, uh, Professor Williams uh, actually uh, conducted the 2001 evaluation. He admitted in deposition under oath that Fulton and DeKalb systems were patched in 2002 by Diebold and not recertified as required by law. But nevertheless, the Georgia Supreme Court denied our claims and they stated that the voter bears responsibility for unequal 
voting system such as mail-in having a verifiable ballot and in-person not, uh, and they they denied our claims back in 2009. Wow. So that that brings us to the events that led to the Curling v. Raffensperger lawsuit originally being filed in 2017, this is where Ricardo comes in. So the Bastille, there was a Bastille team researcher named Logan Lamb, and he discovered that election servers uh, were exposed to the internet. These were the election servers at Center for Election Systems, which that was the air, the, um, that was where the elections are centrally programmed by the state for every county for every election, and they in turn program every voting machine. That that server was wide open for anyone in the world to attack. Logan Lamb reported a whole host of things that he was able to download, all of the election files, the entire voter registration database, uh, and he just has a list, list of things. So he notified uh, Merle King, who was that time the executive director, and uh, Merle King said, thank you very much. We'll take care of it. And then about six months later, he hadn't done anything. The exposure still existed. So that was when uh, KSU was called in. The FBI was called. KSU came in and shut thing down. And as a result of that, Cullen v. Ravensburger was filed uh, back on July 3. And it became available, I think, on uh, July 5. Days later, the Center for Election Systems allowed KSU to destroy all the data on the external server that Lamb had accessed. So there's no trace of what the uh, exposure was, and how bad it was, or anything else. And then, Arlen, so for example, just for for the benefit of the folks who don't know some of the details here, so the Center for Elections Systems is located or was located on the campus of Kennesaw State University. So that that's KSU. Uh, and what happened was that when the second attempt was made and we found out that nothing had been done, then computer security at Kennesaw State, as well as the FBI had been notified. Exactly. And it was Kennesaw State that came in to Ricardo's point. It wasn't Center for Election Systems. Kennesaw State came in and shut that down. And then when the lawsuit was removed to federal court, then uh, the Center for Election Systems allowed KSU to magnetically delete all of the data that remained in KSU possession. And the person who was over that, the operational director at that time, it was none other than Michael Barnes, who is still in the Secretary of State's office and who testified this week. And we grilled him on this um, during his testimony. Wow. So, so what, is, what, what were they supposed to do? That's the point. Yeah. So as, and of course, and Ricardo knows this as well as I do, being in the IT people, but what you would normally do in this case is you would have identified uh, the duration of the exposure. How long was this? How long was this uh, uh, available uh, and for outside hacking? And we found out, by the way, that this was available. We believe 
ever since the system was installed in 2003. Wow. So um, they they could have determined if the, a breach occurred by looking at the audit logs. They could have identified the source of a breach by using the IP addresses and trying to track them down to potential attackers. They could have figured out when the breaches occurred by using log timestamps. These are basic things that we we do in, in auditing uh, of uh, you know any types of, of forensics in this in this manner. Uh, they could have once they've done that, they could have assessed the impact of the breach on any on any of their election applications and implemented a remediation strategy uh, for how would they compensate for the breach? How would they uh, you know given that one if one occurred? How, how would they rectify it would be a better word than compensate. I mean so, these these would seem to be just common sense steps that would be done in a in a corporate setting or, or anywhere else, yeah. I mean, this is not just what would be this done is in a standard election information stuff. security procedure right here. Yeah, exactly. And we wrote a, a, a report about this. It's up on the VoterGA.org studies tab. Up, and you see it in the right-hand corner. Uh, so anybody can go ahead and read about it. So, so the question is, well, what happened? Um, what did they do? Well, Secretary of State Kemp was really upset about this. So he did a Facebook post. He said this was reckless behavior, inexcusable conduct, gross incompetence, undeniable ineptitude. And about two days later, the attorney general resigns from defending him in the in the uh, that case, which was at that time called Curling v. Kemp. We'll explain. Ricardo's going to explain all that in a minute. So what, the reason that the attorney general resigned was because he was criticizing his own organization on which he is responsible for. So, so that was, uh, that said, uh, Attorney General said, it's all right, we, nothing we can do about this, we're out. So wow. let's go on to the next one, Bill. Yep. Okay, what did they really do? Here's what they actually did. Secretary of State Council, Ryan Germany, who also testified this week, and we'll get to cross on Tuesday, um, he said that he filed this fake two-page superficial report to cover up the, this whole matter. And this, rep this report uh, didn't, uh, now, there's certain things that a, a Secretary of State's investigation report should do. And, we'll, and this is what they should have done. So it should identify a complainant. He didn't identify a complainant, uh, probably because it was Kemp. It should identify who the respondents were who were being investigated. He didn't identify that. Uh, it should identify any elections that were impacted by the data destruction. He didn't do that. Uh, it should have included any documents that he reviewed as exhibits. Uh, that's not there. Uh, it should have disclosed any individuals that he contacted for an investigation. Uh, that's standard procedure. He didn't do that. And he didn't even uh, determine who communicates with KSU uh, CES staff uh, for for investigation. So uh, no communications with KSU or the CF staff before writing this report. So uh, the question that we'd like to know is, well, how did you produce this report if you didn't do any investigation whatsoever? So. He, he concluded that, as Ricardo was saying earlier, he, he concluded that this was standard behavior. 
to delete all this data with standard behavior. And as Ricardo just mentioned, it's not exactly opposite what it should, should have done. And the second, the um, Judge Totenberg came in later, and we'll go through a little bit of her orders. She said, when they tried to pull this on court, she said, given the entire course of events described here, the defendant's contention that the service was simply repurposed and not intentionally destroyed or wiped is, quote, flatly not credible, unquote. So this is Judge Totenberg telling the Secretary of State's office in her 2018 order that they are flatly not credible. And she went on to say, uh, to describe this in a little bit more detail, she said, Similarly, the defendant's denial and dodging before the court regarding the known veracity of Logan Lamb's, Logan Lamb's proactive alerts to the center as to the broad-scale vulnerability of its election service, and I know Ricardo wants me to emphasize broad-scale vulnerability, yep. software and databases, both undermines the credibility of defendants' representations and signals the election system problems that would continue upon the center's transfer to the Secretary of State's office. And this was just a small piece over the 2019 order we're gonna tell you a little bit more about in a minute. So this is where I'm gonna hand it off to Ricardo. He's gonna give you a little bit of update about the, uh, the case and the background and, and I'll, I'll come back with a couple things in a little bit. Okay, so when, when the individuals in particular um, Donna Curling and Donna Price um, notified me about what was going on and they had brought Coalition for Good Governance and their team in. Uh, I was brought in in particular because of, again, my history of involvement with regard to the old Diebold systems. Uh, and in particular, I was essentially brought into the case in my official capacity as a state party chairman uh, of an alternative political party, yes, but still, uh, you had individuals who had various, you know, you have Jeffrey, he's an attorney, you have Donna Price, who's part of uh, Georgians for Verified Voting, you have Coalition for Good Governance. Uh, so essentially, I was to represent more of a political party's angle and stake in what we had to do to clean up our elections and take care of some of the structural problems mm -hmm. that we have. So for the defendants, we initially had the Secretary of State in his official capacity, which as Garland noted, that was Brian Kemp, and then with uh, Brad Raffensperger's election to Secretary of State, he became uh, the target defendant. And then we had the state board, election board members who at the time were David Worley, Rebecca Sullivan, Ralph Simpson, and Seth Hart. And then we also had Fulton County elections director in his official capacity. Uh, as the, the case kind of progressed in 2017 and 2018, uh, it was obvious that in terms of what we wanted in terms of the plaintiff's goals and approach uh, had some, some slight differences. So what happened was that uh, Donna Curling and Donna uh, Price both had, and Jeffrey, as a matter of fact, they wanted to continue on. And then the Coalition for Good Governance, myself, Bill and Laura Diggs, uh, and Megan, who replaced Ted, we wanted to take a different tack. So 
that's basically how we began 2019. Uh, in this phase, we now have the Secretary of State, we have the State Election Board in their official capacity, and now we have, until recently, we had the curling group, the Coalition for Good Governance group, of which I was a part of, and then until just recently, uh, because as we were approaching the trial, uh, I saw that essentially we were very narrow, we were narrowing the amount of evidence that was actually going to be discussed in the trial. Uh, and it would definitely deal with what I would call the hypothetical of, okay, we have a system and we can show uh, that yes, it is possible uh, to breach the system. Well, we wanted to be able to say, oh, and we have not only evidence that yes, uh, we can show that there was unauthorized or irregular access to the Dominion BMD system, but we also can show, again, highlight the irregularities in the administration. Mm-hmm. So uh, back in 2019, uh, what the state tried to do was they tried to say, well, well, Mr. Davis's claims as we continue the trial, really, uh, since they were rejected in an earlier court case that uh, Garland had in suing the Secretary of State at that time, Karen Handel, in her official capacity, they were rejected earlier. Uh, and what happened was that in the, this time in the federal court, uh, the federal court judge, Judge Totenberg, uh, were re rejected the attempt by the state to essentially get me out of the case. So the state defendants then went to the Court of Appeals in the 11th District of the federal court. And in their appeal, the state attempted to bar my claims for relief since I was a plaintiff in that prior case. However, the appeals court found that the state failed to satisfy their burden of proof because they're trying to mount an affirmative defense to get me out. Uh, but they didn't meet the standard of the court with regard to saying, yes, you have a claim here. Okay. Yep. And in particular, what they did was even though uh, the earlier Favorito case in state court and the current case in federal court both challenged the reliability and accuracy of the election system uh, in the earlier case with the old Diebel DREs the court said the susceptibility of the machines to fraudulent manipulation may have been foreseeable but was far from a reality and then later on in the opinion the court stated that more than a decade following the initiation of the Favorito lawsuit, the secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security declared that DRE voting systems were a national security concern. And ever since the adoption of this type of technology for conducting our elections, the court said the technology has not been updated to address known vulnerabilities 
in the face of persistent election security threats that the national government warns remain looming for future elections. And again, that statement right there, I think is pertinent because now that the case, or at least our challenge now is in federal court, the fact that the federal government now has said that this is a problem weighed in our favor. And in particular, uh, to show, I, from my perspective, uh, Garland's professional prescience, that the court noted that many of the court's findings way back then in the Favorito case regarding the reliability of Georgia's DRE voting system have been proven outdated or inaccurate with the passage of time. And, and again, I would say that Garland's professional opinion with regard to the state of those systems over time and the fact that they really didn't account for uh, what the rest of the computer systems industry accounts for in terms of making sure those systems are secure was not being done. And I would say that even with the new uh, with the new Dominion voting systems, we still have the same problem. Next slide. Well, well that would that would certainly be in line with what we learned from the Halderman report. So sure. Uh, yes. Uh, and, and if I can point out in the Halderman report, one thing that he noted, I think, bears repeating, and that was that he stated that the system in total was not architected with the level of security necessary uh, so that it, it should have been rejected by the state outright for consideration. Mm -hmm. So now here we go. So Garland, here are the key orders in the curling case. First of all, the one, the big win that we got in 2019, where the judge found that the Secretary of State's <clears throat> office voting system that they procured and then deployed was unconstitutional and banned it from future use in federal elections. So they couldn't use it in the 2020 federal elections. Uh, so we all know, and, and the state saw this coming. So they went ahead and started the process to procure the system we have right now. Uh, we went back to the judge and said, judge, based on what we know about the Dominion voting system, the same fundamental constitutional issues still remain. And in October of that year, she found that the replacement QR coded Dominion ballot marking device system validates two Georgia statutes regarding the state law that requires the voter verifiability of the ballot. Uh, she could not stop the election that was about to happen in a few weeks. So what we have been pushing toward is judge, we need to get to a final place where either you can make a ruling or we need to go to trial. And uh, <clears throat> the pretrial order back in November, the judge said that yes, between all the back and forth, the depositions, the evidence we've submitted uh, by all the plaintiffs, she found that there is adequate evidence that a, a hearing, a bench trial can be held to determine whether or not the BMD system indeed does have constitutional deficiencies. Uh, and as Garland noted here in the slide, uh, just those three orders 
is over 400 pages. And in particular, I'm going to know that uh, if there are any legal nerds out there or whatnot, the November 10th uh, order has a very helpful summary. The judge took the time so that if anybody's just walking into this, she names all the key events, all the key players to catch you up to what's going on. Well, Oh, and, now, now. Garland, I'm going to let you take this one. <laughs> okay. So uh, as, as Ricardo just explained that she found in 2020 that they, here's exactly what she found. The Georgia law says that you have to print an elector verifiable paper ballot and produce paper ballots that are marked with the elector's choices in a format readable elect by the elector. And then she found in that very order that Ricardo just talked about she said plaintiffs and other voters who wish to vote in person are required to vote in a system that does none of those things. And, and as Ricardo explained, she did she made this order on October uh, 11th, 2020. So think about that for a minute. The November 2020 election was conducted on a system that the United States District Court found and violated two Georgia statutes. So now two questions come up because the secretary of state had this information four years ago, almost. Why was there no leadership in the secretary of state's office or in the elections division to go to the state legislature and fix the problem? Why? Why was there no leadership to fix this problem uh, in, in court last week when when I was being questioned, one of the things I stated was that this is a key issue right here. The fact that we are essentially, we've deployed systems that on their face violate state law and nobody in the state government has fixed it. Or even tried to fix it. Right. And well, indeed, in some cases, tried to keep dialogue to a minimum or squash it with regard to these problems well i would have definitely bill hit it right here in other words there have been attempts to get legislation and to fix this problem but why is there resistance why right so i'll just uh what we just wanted to highlight a few of her comments for you uh bill and todd which this goes back to her 2019 order. And they are just um, scathing. As, as Ricardo said, there was 435 pages. Those first two orders were 300 pages. I think the 2019, about 150 pages of just scathing remarks about the Secretary of State. And the first one has to do with the fortalist uh, analysis. And uh, she says that the state retained uh, neither Ms. Payton nor its other expert, Dr. Michael Shamos. Uh, uh, Ms. Payton is uh, from Fordless, I believe. She said they didn't retain them to conduct an actual cybersecurity review and analysis of the GEMS DRE system and databases or the statewide voter registration system or elections division, apart from Fordless general risk assessment. So what she's saying there is 
um, they attain um, the Secretary of State's office after all this blew up, retained Fortalis to do a general risk assessment analysis, but never let them look at anything regarding the elections division, which is where the problem was. So that's uh, uh, just unbelievable in itself. And then you, she goes on to say, most significantly, the Secretary of State never asked or contracted with Fortalis to perform a specific cybersecurity evaluation. Wouldn't that be the first thing you'd want to do after this blew up? No. That's, so we got a few more slides, Bill. I want to give you a couple more comments. So well, Great comment. So on that last one, she didn't just say, oh, we looked at one little piece of this. But the fact that we had all these pieces and components that made up our election system and none of them were looked at. Exactly. And she and she makes another comment about that in a minute, I think. Um, and then she goes on to talk about Merritt Beaver, who's the Secretary of State's Chief Information Officer. He's just recently retired. We found that in court this week. And she explains that uh, in his affidavits, in this case, he never declared that, that penetration testing had been conducted as an apparent indication of Secretary of State remedial measures. And his declarations never even hinted that Fortalis had actually successfully penetrated a major Secretary of State network and data system that would allow the attacker access to information as to architecture of the entire system by obtaining control over the domain. Break it he, down for the average guy there, Garland. He completely left all of that out. He didn't, he didn't even mention that Fortalis in the evaluation they did conduct found that the system, their web system, was wide open for anyone in the world to hack. That's and the control. They could have taken control of the whole thing. Yes, key word there is the control. Not just hack but absolutely gain control of the entire domain. Amazing. Hmm. Oops, bear with me for a second. This is one bright judge. There we go. So a, a couple other things. She talked about Mr. Beaver. She was very frustrated with him. Um, she said that the Secretary of State had never requested or authorized focused penetration testing of the Elections Division. And this is what Ricardo was talking about earlier. The Elections Division, that includes the GEM database, which was the Elections Database at that time, the server system, the ENET or voter registration system, or the Secretary of State's election services vendors. So to Ricardo's point uh, that he made earlier, here she outlines exactly what he never looked at. But they should never, have looked at as part of normal information security protocol. He should have done this. Exactly. And then she was further frustrated because he could not recall any of the identified issues or recommendations in the Fortalist report until he was furnished a copy of that report to review. He was unable to tell the court any recommendation from the Fortalist security analysis that he had authorized them to conduct. Must she not have spent too much time learning it. 
She was flabbergasted. So she goes on to explain uh, that all the, you know, how comprehensive this case was and what Ricardo and the other plaintiffs did. Uh, and, uh, and they provided affidavits from 137 voters, two county poll workers, 15 poll watchers, describing a, vi a variety of problematic issues with the voting system. And she says uh, that the voter registration database in regards to that aspect of the, of the election system has been open to access alteration and likely some degree of virus and malware infection for years. That is exactly true. Scary stuff. Yeah. And well, what's interesting here, Todd, is that this is not us saying this. Right. This is the United States District Court. After hearing everything the Secretary of State could put on the table, she calls them not credible and she reaches these conclusions. So this is no, this is not coming some, from some biased election integrity advocate or you know, someone like possibly myself. This is coming from the United States District Court who has heard the most comprehensive set of evidence ever presented in a Georgia election case or uh, to, my, to my knowledge. So that brings us to Senate Bill, uh, House Bill 316. House Bill 316 was, was the bill that mandated these ballot marking devices, which the elections officials uh, have, um, the uh, experts wrote to the election officials and told them they're, they're unsecure to begin with. That bill was sponsored only by House Speaker David Ralston's leadership team. Not one other Republican not one other Democrat in the entire House was willing to put their name on this piece of trash. It was sponsored by Representative Barry Fleming out of Augusta, and the bill was passed, uh, and he ignored, uh, he ignored pleas from basically uh, everyone on earth uh, you tried to explain to him this was not a good thing to do. The bill was passed without a fiscal note as required for any expenditure over $100,000 and any also any ongoing mandate uh, on the counties of, uh, I think that's uh, down to a few thousand, 10,000, maybe I can't remember the exact number. Jeff Duncan made the decision that this bill could be heard and passed without a fiscal note. Former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan made that fiscal conservatism to me, right? Right. And fortunately, <laughs> he's gone. So instead of getting a note, which was required of 100,000, of I believe it is, the uh, Georgia taxpayers, this was, this was allocated 150 million, not 100,000, 150 million for the system. And $100 million of unfunded mandates on the counties, to, to that's for licensing, for testing, for um, uh, logistics, uh, storage of the machines, uh, certifications. All that that's got to be done is, is now was spread onto the counties. That's another $100 million over 10 years. Then you had $35 million of interest on a 20-year bond for a system that has a 10-year shelf life. 
So we, the taxpayers, will pay for this system 10 years after its shelf life is, is over. Steal elections and get rich at the same time. What a deal. Yeah. <laughs> and Brad Raffensperger uh, made this decision uh, ignoring our personal warnings. Uh, uh, we had a me meeting before Brad Raffensperger ever became Secretary of State to tell him that do not buy a QR-coded voting system wasn't just Dominion, it was also ES&S. We said there are other systems that are available from all the vendors that you don't have to uh, uh, worry about that particular aspect. And of course, as you now know, Brad Ramsberger ignored us. So that brings us down to where we are now. Judge Totenberg has decided that we do need to have a hearing and she's clearly set exactly what the parameters are for the hearing. She says, quite simply, the court has the legal authority to identify constitutional deficiencies with the existing voting system, but it does not have the power to prescribe or mandate new voting systems to replace the current legislatively enacted system. Well, that works for us. She can declare one or more or all of the components of the Dominion BMD system to be constitutionally deficient. That's what that's what our, uh, Ricardo's focus is, and that is different than the other plaintiffs who don't seem to be focused on that. What her what she really wants. And then the last slide I think uh, says explains that. When I think this is really significant, that not only is she going to look at the constitutional deficiency of the voting system. But she says that settled precedent allows for suits based on the argument that state officials' inaction allegedly harms constitutional rights. The court finds no basis to reach a different conclusion with respect to plaintiffs' BMD claims. So the state's inaction uh, is fair game for this trial. Or, and of course, inaction also includes inappropriate action. So that she has recognized will harm our constitutional rights to vote. And that is really, really significant. And those are what I believe to be the two basis, basic points of this trial. Um, and it's really ex ex exciting that we're going to get an opportunity, uh, thanks to Ricardo uh, going out, um, to uh, be able to put this evidence on the record. How do you feel about Totenberg today? Well, this is where Judge, uh, where I think Tamara comes in. I'm really excited about it, but let, uh, maybe we'll I'll ask Tamara to share a few thoughts because she's been in the courtroom uh, every day. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really encouraged. It's clear that she understands the difference between the other plaintiffs' complaint and Ricardo's concern. She's mentioned that they deserve to be heard. Uh, and she wants to build the record. So she seldom sustains objections from the defense. Um, and as you mentioned, Raffensperger not coming to testify, all of the attorneys are using that. Uh, one even mentioned that they need hearsay evidence from another person in the Secretary of State's office because they weren't able to question Raffensperger directly she allows it um it's it's clear that she's thinking through it she's um 
considering all the information, it feels like she's really giving the plaintiffs a lot of leeway. Um, and I'll just say in the first couple of days after opening remarks, we had opening statements from the three plaintiffs groups, attorneys and David Oles, who's representing Ricardo, his opening statement is posted on voterga.org legal tab, if you'd like to see that. Then the plaintiffs began presenting their case by having uh, certain plaintiffs testify. And Ricardo was one of those plaintiffs. He went uh, near the end of the second day right. and he was able to get good, real evidence about uh, errors and irregularities in 20 and 22 elections. And the judge remarked, and she even used her hand, she said, you know, evidence and testimony up to this point has been like here. And with Mr. Davis, it's up here. And I need to digest all this. Um, so that made Garland just feel so good. <laughs> And it gives me an opportunity to brag on Ricardo. He, he really uh, did you know, uh, uh, The teamwork makes the dream work, right? So <laughs> yeah. uh, in, in particular, because most of the focus of the other plaintiffs had, was, again, on the BMDs right. and voting on the BMDs. Uh, yes. What we tried to do, uh, and by God's kindness, we were able to do, is get some of, in particular, the administration of the elections issues on the record. Yes, that's right. Um, and and you mentioned things like the DeKalb uh, commissioners raised where they produced the wrong winner, um, the 17,000 votes in Fulton County that didn't have valid images you know, several of those things, uh, and she allowed all of that, which was not evidence that had previously been been mentioned. And, and in particular, in the DeKalb 2020 uh, Commissioner Post 2 race, it's like, well, if, if the error had not been so egregious, if the fact that the candidate in her own precinct got zero votes even though her and her husband voted for her in that election let's just say oh maybe it said well she had gotten a thousand eleven hundred votes but the error was still there she would not have known of the problem right right let me ask so, you this you know in before the 2020 election nancy pelosi famously said about trump well we have some surprises for him and uh, we all know what happened. And then recently she said, well, it's obvious, you know, paraphrasing, it's obvious Trump can't be president again. So, you know, when I was flying in the Air Force, we had this expression, stay ahead of the airplane, like think ahead of what actually could happen. So is anybody wargaming where they're very good at like whack-a-mole, frauding different areas? Are we wargaming or thinking about where they could come in and, and steal the election? Let's say they make everybody, everybody feel good about the machines. We got rid of those, but what else is out there? Yeah, so Todd, this is our war game right here. Mm -hmm. The Curling v. Raffensperger case, we, um, uh, we, I mean, Ricardo and I talked about this for several months before we actually did it. But 
It, this is in order to save the 2024 election, we have to get enough evidence on the record to force the judge to rule that we can't use this system to conduct the 2024 election. Mm -hmm. And if we if we can, you know, right now we have a secretly counted electronically vote, electronically counted system uh, election, uh, secretly counted on unverifiable voting equipment. If that is allowed to stand, uh, we are in deep, deep trouble. Mm -hmm. So what we this is this is our war game in in progress right here. Is that our war okay. game is to get this ruling that the system is constitutionally deficient, which would not have probably happened otherwise, because as Ricardo's already said, the the plaintiffs, the other plaintiffs were going to rely on almost totally speculative evidence. Uh, which may not be enough, even though it is overwhelming evidence, it may not be enough to overcome the objection of the defense, which says, oh, it's all speculative. Mm -hmm. So um, it's never, there's no evidence. So what Ricardo, as Tamara said, she has begun, he has begun to put the evidence on the record, and that is our war game. Mm -hmm. So okay. one, of the, one of the questions I got during the <clears throat> um, fair fight, uh, true the vote case, uh, had to do with being able to observe the the things that the judge said, did, so forth, even before the, the ruling. And a number of folks would ask, do you feel like there's fairness here or use some other term? But, you know, do you, do you think the judge gets it and is is going to lawfully pursue the real law in ruling on this? I know that's a kind of a tough question to put to you, but I feel like we we should ask what do you have a feeling from your observations as to where the uh the judge seems to be going in this well i think she's been incredibly fair and as i said she's interested in the evidence she wants to get to the truth and you can look at her previous rulings to see that they were favorable rulings she she cares about the law but to give you an example um for the last two days, the, the three witnesses were out of the Secretary of State's office. It was Michael Barnes, who was director of CES, uh, Chris Harvey, who was a former uh, elections director, and then Ryan Germany, uh, who was former general counsel. He just left uh, the Secretary of State in 2023. And all of them had been there for a long time. So they span, you know, the Kennesaw State problem all the way up through um, the Coffee County instance that their other plaintiffs are trying to make a big, big issue out of their case. So they should have known about all of her rulings. They should have known about uh, Alex Halderman's report. And the only one who knew about Alex Halderman's report was the general counsel. Chris Harvey and Michael Barnes knew nothing about her rulings, knew nothing. And Alex Halderman's report, if you remember, was issued in July of 21. Thank you for saying I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And the judge kind of took over questioning, especially with Michael Barnes, and said, were you not aware of these rulings where I was very critical of operations within the Secretary of State? And he said, no, I wasn't. So 
there was no way that the Secretary of State's office was going to remediate this. And she was visibly disturbed. Mm-hmm. I remember. Got, I seem ahead. to recall that it, the Halderman report was sealed. However, his office was given access to it, I, I think, outside of the ceiling, but, but prior to sealing. Is that correct? Actually, it was um, sealed. And Ryan Germany, general counsel, was the only person in the Secretary of State's office that was allowed to see it for several months. So it wasn't until sometime in early 2022, so more than six months out, before the defendants and the plaintiffs were allowed to see it. But but to Bill's point, Bill, I think you're right. It was not... It, it was not the court that said that the Secretary of State's office uh, members can see it. It was the Secretary of State's counsel. Outside that counsel. Dis- mm-hmm. and, well, he claims it was outside counsel, uh, which I think I'm, is sus- suspect. But it was his counsels. To your point, Bill, they could have given that to everyone in the Secretary of State's yeah. office who needed to know. So when Tam is saying they were not allowed, it wasn't because the judge didn't allow it. It's because the Secretary of State's counsels uh, allegedly would not allow that report to be shared within the Secretary of State's office so that they could protect the voters of the state of Georgia from cybersecurity attacks. That is flatly not credible. Amen. <laughs> as, I note, as I noted on the witness stand, there is a collapse of the fiduciary level of care necessary by these men. Yes, well, you're exactly right. But even so, the Secretary of State's office, their personnel was allowed to see it in early 22. This is now 2024. Correct. And they did nothing during that time. And she took note of that. Well, they, so I they, think, think they she's per- seen truth. They pursued a... Uh, a um, report uh, funded by Dominion to actually answer it and and dispute it. Did they not? That's correct. That's that's the minor report, which was unsigned. They they couldn't find anybody in the entire world who would put their name on that minor report. And And minor is some DARPA, you know, black hole organization. Exactly. Exactly. 29, 29 experts wrote to the head of Miter and said, you need to retract that report because it is, quote, unquote, dangerous and, quote, unquote, ridiculous. That is how absurd that report was. But Raffensperger has stood by it as recently in the last two or three months. He still mentions the MITRE report. Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel like the people of Georgia realize what Raffensperger is at this point? Oh, yeah. Well, I think the people of Georgia don't realize, I mean, the issues, the fundamental issues we're talking about right here, none of the major media well, they're not going have reported yeah. on this. The fact that, oh, you know, yes, this expert has said these things, but again, in the real information systems world, if I if I was the CIO and I got that kind of report, brother, heads would roll if nothing got moving. That's right. There'd be there'd be bottoms bouncing on the street, wouldn't there? Come on, you know. Yeah. Huh. Well, so, it's it it's particularly troubling in light of all the other stuff that's that's come out regarding 
Raffensburger um, in in their the seeming um, steps taken to try to divert any attention from these errors that were actually found the track back to Raffensburger's office. And it's like, first it's, oh no, well, we're not responsible for our website. And oh no, we, we didn't do that. The county did it. And, you know, and we're not going to pursue this. And then we need you to tell the, you know, the complainant that we're not going to pursue this. I mean, it's just the, the more it mounts up, the worse, unless I'm mistaken, the worse it looks. No, it does. And I think through those three witnesses, it was clear of the inaction or the inappropriate actions of the Secretary of State's office in every topic that was discussed. Um, and this will continue because where we ended up on Friday afternoon is uh, David Alls, Ricardo's attorney, still needs to question him um, but the judge needed to leave early. So that will be the first thing on Tuesday. And of course, he'll have questions uh, that Garland and Ricardo have, have worked on. And, and that would be a good day to be at the hearing, Bill. That definitely would be <laughs> hint, hint. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, one other thing, because we've been talking, we've been hammering on the Secretary of State. The Secretary of State is not the only uh, defendant in this case. The other defendant is the state elections board mm -hmm. who has, I mean, if they don't have a fiduciary level of concern and care to make sure that good governance is happening in the state of uh, secretary of state's office, why in the world are they there? Well, and don't worry. They know a lot about elections at Waffle House. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, he stole my line. Holy oh, smoke. <laughs> Well, especially, and to Ricardo's point, especially since they were made aware of all the county problems of the Dominion system by case after case after case that has gone before the state election board on a variety of issues. No. So most of them, there were a couple of state election board members that took the stand quickly um, last week. The rest of them will go this next week. And the plan is for next week that the plaintiffs will be able to rest their case by Friday. Mm -hmm. We're not sure we believe it because things are moving pretty slowly with these witnesses. I understand. Well, one, um, you know, it, it doesn't miss our perusal that this has been a, what, five-year fight so far? Am I doing the well, math right total here? seven when you count, you know, because again, Oh, that's right. We started with the Devo DREs. That's right. And the same fundamental questions, Bill, still remain before the people of Georgia. Does this system actually protect their constitutional rights? Right. A deceptively simple question that, that's taken an exorbitant amount of time. Correct. So, yeah. uh, and, and Bill, I want to just quickly add one more thing. We, we've got to give a shout out to David Alls. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, my goodness, yes. He, he has done a fabulous job of just walking in cold and picking up. Uh, uh, and he's just he's very efficient in his questions. The judge likes him a lot. Uh, in fact, before this is over, I think that she will be uh, he will be her favorite attorney in the courtroom. Uh, just because he he he's he's a no BS guy, gets right to the point, uh, asks the right questions, gets the answer, moves on, 
Um, and uh, he's really gaining respect from the judge. So we are really grateful that we were able to uh, get him uh, as, as an attorney uh, on, on this case. Yeah. A Carl, dynamic how- we, we saw in the Fair Fight case, too, the judge seemed to be able to sense, be able to judge, as it were, the uh, veracity of the statements that were being made uh, to him and to the court record and seemed to respond to that uh you know, with uh, with favor when it was straightforward, and you know, some level of uh, concern perhaps when it seemed to be evasive. So, Todd, you were going. Oh, I was I'm just going to ask that we continue to pray to that end that God would give us. Yes. Favor. I was going to say, you know, there's a lot of this show has gotten extremely popular across the country, and uh, if somebody in uh, Oregon wants to help your five-year fight, how do they do that, Garland? Uh, the best thing, Todd, and always we always thank you for this. And Bill, thank you for showing the slide. Uh, it's voterj.org, um, and we uh, all the donations are tax deductible. Um, and the most important thing to know is that we are volunteers. Uh, Ricardo, Tamara, and I do not take a salary from VoterGA. In fact, Tamara is one of our has probably donated uh, as much money as many people have in this organization. So we uh, will put that money directly into this lawsuit. Um, There are, it is expensive, but this is the most uh, efficient way that we can get the evidence on the record and get a ruling in our favor. So uh, thank you for mentioning that, Todd. We appreciate it. Indeed. What's going on here in Georgia is pivotal. And if people want to make a difference, that's how you do it. Yep. Todd will tell you that for many, many months and and now many guests have uh, concurred that there, for reasons we probably can't explain or know right now, there's something about Georgia that's making us an epicenter for all of this. So Mm -hmm. um, all of this work will be um, central to uh, what we all pray to be a, a positive outcome in what I think is going to be a number of areas. So that's right. And Todd, I'm hoping, uh, that, last I'm hoping that, Bill, that one of the things that comes out of this is that citizens in Georgia, and in particular in our counties, begin to take an active interest in the maintenance of their elections. Well, we were lazy for a long time, you know. Well, oh, yeah. they're, they're doing, the Republican Party will take care of that, you know. Can't it, depend it, on that. No, not, for decades we were lazy and you know, I, my, my kids are like, your generation allowed this. And I said, well, you're right. We were lazy. We have to, so we have to fix it. So it's yeah. on us. Follow our lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, I bet we'll have you on again as the, as the case proceeds. Uh, we will be available for updates if, if needed. And uh, we appreciate you guys making, making time uh, to bring people up to speed today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. We're glad to do it. Good to see you. Take care. Take care. Whew, long one. I think that's yeah, but you know this is this is not a trivial case. This this could be a fulcrum, and it could be, you know, we will see. Um, God, God willing, in the way that uh, you know, uh, true of the votes cases. There's a number of people now that are re reengaged and looking at cleaning their voter rolls. They've uh, they have a renewed energy in that because they realize that there's been a ruling that says they are doing things that are allowed, and they don't have to be. Um, primarily concerned that, oh my gosh, Mark Elias and company are coming after me. Well, you know, I was doing a show with our German uh, colleagues this morning and 
a lot of things are happening there also. And uh, with the truckers and, you know, everybody's farmers standing up. And I said, look, there's cracks, you know, there's cracks in the matrix. It's glitching and we got to widen those cracks, pour on the gas and really fight to, you know, this is the time. So yeah. everybody has to double their efforts to save their children's future, in my opinion. So yeah. this is, and then there's cracks here in Georgia, obviously. I'd like to show something if I could. Um, we've done it a couple times, but as days pass by now, that seems to be ever more important. Um, just before True the Votes uh, ruling came in, a couple weeks before, I believe, uh, Catherine had done a very short video, but it it just bears so much weight. I'd like to I'd like to share it one more time today if we could, and it kind of has a bearing on everything we're working on. There is a a, a very palpable presence in our country and in our world, I think, right now, certainly in our country, that is trying to convince us that all is lost. It is not. We are winning. We just have to face it and stand strong. God will fight for us, but we have to face it. Good words. They are indeed. Well, that's all I got, Bill. You got anything else? Uh, we'll have more this week. Uh, there were a couple things on Iowa, but we'll, uh, we'll defer those to our next, uh, our next show. And I bet we're going to have more, uh, you know, more drama. There's already been uh, a, a number of things shaking out. You see people crystallizing in one direction or another. Rand Paul came out with the never Nikki website and initiative. And Mr. DeSantis seems to continue to, uh, step on his own feet, I guess is one way to put it. Did you see the photo that Laura Loomer put up of him when he saw her in the elevator? And uh, it was just. It's funny the, you should say so. The, Hang the on. The look just of moment. fear on his face was priceless. Yeah, let's see. We might just have that. Hang oh, wow. on here. Let's see. I, I knew I could count on and you. And then there's a couple pictures, yeah, but there's it. one of them. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's yeah. hilarious! You know, and and <laughs> and now keep in mind his his slogan was "Never back down." Yeah, right. So right. I don't don't think he's backing down, but it looks like he's running for the elevator. So, and then know. Vivek got called out by the press. So uh, yeah. a lot I, of things are coming to light. I suspect we're going to have some interesting conversations, and maybe some of the constituents will with. Uh, uh, Rich, McC uh, Rich McCormick and Dave David uh, Clark, because they've made the choice to go out to uh, Iowa to stump for DeSantis and his yeah. in his looming, you know, 10 or 11 percent popularity. So and we have asked McCormick to come on multiple times through his staff and we're not get even getting a response. Now, we have so. indeed. I mean, I, I don't think I'm a scary guy. I don't think you're um, a very scary, scary. guy. I mean, we're pretty fair here. We are. You know, so, so. we will All see right. how things play out. Take us out, Bill. Thank you. All right.